Hey, Aaron. How's it going, Tim? We watched the movie Fat Man and Little Boy for the podcast, which is about the effort to build the world's first atomic bomb, codenamed the Manhattan Project. You know, the more I think about it, Manhattan Project is a great codename. If it was used today, the Russians would just think it was another hipster cocktail bar. Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and often nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear nonproliferation for a living. I'm joined today on the podcast by Aaron Connolly, an associate program director at Girls Security and currently a master's student, and uh, Kate Hewitt, a federal contractor at the National Nuclear Security Administration. Thanks for coming on the podcast, you all. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Uh, these are the winners of the 2018 Leonard Reiser Award for having written the best article on Voices of Tomorrow in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. The article is titled, American Students Aren't Taught Nuclear Weapons Policy in School. Here's how to fix that problem. Now, is it by watching lots of old nuclear movies from the 80s? What is the solution to this problem? Yeah, that'd probably work just fine. <laughs> this movie would make the cut for it, but I think... no. It, uh, it's one way to go. Chernobyl did wonders, I'm sure. No, so uh, we we prescribed more um, policy prescriptions focusing on getting high schools to adopt curricula that focuses on both present and past nuclear weapons policies, really just covering fundamental basics. And just expanding beyond what I personally learned in high school, which was we created nuclear weapons in World War II. We dropped them, and that was kind of the end of the discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so trying to expand that, adding more nuance, and adding more of the current policy debate for today. And you actually take these ideas on the road. You go to high schools and, and talk to students, talk with teachers. How has that experience been like? What What's the reception been, and has that been helpful for people? It's been really grounding for me personally, because honestly, high schoolers ask the hardest questions, mm-hmm. because it makes you reexamine the fundamentals. And Kate and I went through this really long process of how do you condense the whole nuclear policy field into a 40-minute lecture and then adding time for Q&A, which was probably the best part. Mm -hmm. And so just really teasing out the very basics so that students had enough information to then engage with it in the way that they saw appropriate. And so we found the Q&A to be the most important part. And I personally also learned a lot. I totally agree. It was really interesting because... I thought that we had parsed it out to what was pretty tangible to grasp, but then even in the very first presentation that we gave the first time we went um, to Richland, Washington, my hometown, we gave... 22 presentations uh, in four days. 22, wow. Yeah, it was, we it lost was, our voice. It was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot. Uh, in hindsight, would have done it differently, but that's okay. <laughs> but when we were, you know, in our very first presentation, the teachers would ask us to sort of go over some of the concepts that we were talking about, like what is an intercontinental ballistic missile and something that just seems like an everyday topical conversation that we have even as folks who are new to the field 
you have to break that down on a much deeper level. And it's a good learning experience for us to recognize this is why the public can't engage on this mm-hmm. conversation because we're, you know, a few years into our careers and we're still starting to just talk about these things like everybody knows what they are. But realistically, that's not the case for most of Americans. So we need to do a better job. Did it seem like most people's entry point is pop culture? And that's kind of how they as, as high school students tend to learn about this, what what a nuclear weapon is, and maybe potentially where we got it from in the first place? I think it's definitely a combination of what they're seeing in pop culture or what's popping up on their phones and social media in little tidbits. Hmm. North Korea was a big concern because we were out there in May 2018, Hmm. um, and that came up quite a bit because it was, I believe, in Fire and Fury. So I think that was also a big entry point where people were like, this is all we know, that they have them, and that's it. I don't know if you had someone like yourselves uh, talk to you about these issues when you were younger, but how did you all get into this field? Kind of before we get into the the movie that we want to talk about today, well, you know, how, how did you all end up you know, starting your path into ended up being around, sitting around this table talking about this? My past actually directly connects to this movie. I'm from Richland, Washington, so my hometown is home of the Hanford site of mm. the Manhattan Project. We produced the plutonium that went in the bomb dropped on Nagasaki in World War II. My great-grandfather moved our family or his family there specifically to work at the Manhattan Project. He oh, was wow. a mechanical engineer and was intricately linked with designing the core rods for the B reactor and was one of the first people in, or one of the people in the room at the B reactor the first time that it went critical. So the first time there was a plutonium nuclear reaction. Hmm. And I grew up in this town that's, you know, glorifies nuclear weapons in this kind of strange way. So my Uh, High school's mascot is a mushroom cloud. I worked at a nuclear energy facility when I was in high school. My whole life has sort of just been surrounded by Mm. this weird memorization, I guess, or or something to nuclear weapons. Didn't know that I was going to end up doing that for a living. I definitely wasn't a science person. I loved policy. I loved politics. I loved the world. I thought it was fascinating, but I was not a science person. And just through sort of a series of roundabout ways where I kept having touch points again with nuclear technology in some strange way, I had an internship at MIT doing nuclear technology policy when I um, was in undergrad. And Worked at a nuclear energy facility, as I said, and then when I ended up getting my master's degree, about six months in, I realized what I really wanted to do was look at the effects of WMD and international law policy. And through studying that, I realized what I really wanted to do was look at why countries pursued nuclear weapons Hmm. technology and what made them keep those nuclear weapons after maybe the first reason that they initially pursued them was no longer relevant. So I started to study the factors that sustain a nuclear weapons program in different countries around the world and thus ended up in D.C. And here I am now. Very cool. Erin, what about you? So my route was a little more circuitous. I did not grow up near a Manhattan Project site, but I actually ended up doing a project on North Korea in high school and was fascinated with the decision to pursue nuclear weapons and what that meant, but had no inclination that I could make a career out of that. Mm -hmm. I actually went to college to be a teacher and then took one education psychology course and was like, I will not (laughs) be a teacher. Um, And had that classic life crisis about what I was actually going to do. And I was taking this national security course and we had to write a paper my sophomore year and I had no idea to write on. And my professor said, you should write about Iran. And I asked, what about Iran? And he told me to Google it. And I did, and it was spring 2015 when they were just pursuing 
not just pursuing, but when they were really finalizing the JCPOA. And so I became fascinated with, again, the decisions to pursue nuclear weapons, what the value add was, the leverage the United States had, and just kind of the policy implications that surround these weapons that were incredibly destructive that I had learned nothing about, Mm. despite being 20 years old in college. And so that was really interesting. And I Googled internships because I had no idea. I was like, arms control internships, national security, because I just had no idea what the field was. Mm -hmm. And no one at my college could tell me. And so I thankfully landed an internship at the Center for Arms Control. And then I worked there for the past two years before leaving to pursue my master's. And that's a, that's a great place to get your start in this field. And I, I think the, a lot of the great work you all are doing as well with girls' security is a good opportunity for people to not have to just Google it mm-hmm. or not be lucky enough to, or I mean, I don't know, unlucky enough to be you know, born <laughs> and raised kind of near a nuclear site. You give them, people, uh, you know, particularly women, the opportunity and the, the insights of like, here's how this field works and uh, what is the some of the, the work that you do for that before we kind of get into the movie thing? I think it's people good for people to know about this, at least to go to the website for resources and things. So girl security is something that I wish we had when we started in the field. And their founder, Lauren Buda, has been really amazing in terms of creating this environment for girls and other women in the field to be empowered and to learn more about the national security space. And Girl Security focuses on teaching core competencies. So it gives you these Mm. frameworks to approach issues in national security or other fields that you may decide to pursue. And those core competencies are critical thinking, ethics, strategy, and logistics. There's programming in schools that are a lot like their modules. And that's something Kate and I are actually creating a nuclear weapons one. Right now there's national security ethics and things like that. There's a phase mentorship network, which is really nice. You're placing someone just one rung above you. And then we also do games and simulations. And so next week we'll be doing a simulation with 365 girls oh, exciting. on okay. Syria. So stay tuned how that goes. <laughs> um, but it's been really great to kind of ground the conver- these really abstract conversations with students and they're more than capable in, with engaging with the material. And also for more emerging issues like cyber and emerging tech, they have a really unique perspective on it because they experience it so personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something we should pay more attention to. That's great. Well, I don't know if uh, in on that curriculum will be this movie that we'll talk about, the, <laughs> the Fat Man and Little Boy. But uh, either, either way, I'm really excited that you know, you're here. You're really one of the, the, the two experts I wanted to have talking about this. Uh, when you suggested, oh, I want to do a movie on the Manhattan Project, on the history of the bomb. And I said, well, I've, I've got a movie for you that <laughs> should be good. It has one of the most stellar casts I've seen uh, in a film. But, you know, most people don't know about this movie because it didn't do so well. It flopped. <laughs> so we're, we're talking about the 1989 Paramount Pictures movie, Fat Man and Little Boy. This movie, according to Box Office Mojo, uh, made $3.6 million. On a $30 million budget. So, uh, ouch. 47% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, so what we're going to talk about today are two really underlining questions. Uh, is there something about the Manhattan Project that prevents it from being a successful movie? Or was just just kind of a failure of execution? And, you know, based on the work that you do, what is the best way to teach and uh, learn about this particular piece of very interesting history? So for people who haven't heard of this movie, let me just read the tagline from the movie poster. You know, these little short advertisements. Usually they're short, like aliens. It's, uh, you know, in space, they can't hear you scream. This one, it's pretty long because posters back then used to be pretty weird. In 1942, the United States secretly set out to build the world's first atomic bombs. They called them Fat Man and Little Boy. And the man they called on to get the job done was General Leslie Groves. Strong, brilliant, 
determined, willing to push human endurance to the limit, willing to bear the responsibility, the glory, and the blame. His mission changed the world. His story is the story of his times and ours. I don't know how they fit that on a poster, but it also doesn't really describe the movie. (laughs) And again, I keep emphasizing the his. We'll get into that a little bit later in terms of what this particular focus they place on the, the story. Directed by Roland Joffrey, Joffrey? Um, who is a pretty good director. He did The Killing Fields, which is, weirdly enough, the movie that my mom and dad went on their first date with. Uh, For some reason, they kept dating after that particular sad film. Uh, But he also did The Mission, which is a pretty good uh, film as well. Uh, But he probably doesn't talk about this too much. He was the producer of that Super Mario Brothers movie. So quite a career, right? Wow. Really been all over the place. (laughs) But we got some big people in here. We got Paul Newman as uh, the previously mentioned uh, General Leslie Grove. We have Dwight Schultz as J. Robert Oppenheimer. People may know him as Murdoch, uh, Mad Mad Murdoch on the on the A Team. A little bit different than the world's you know brilliant scientist. John Cusack plays Michael Merriman, who's a bit of a composite character, similar to. Uh, Ulana from Chernobyl, not exactly a real person, but kind of represents a good number of different scientists involved. But there is, we'll talk about later, a bit of a stand-in for a real-life scientist, but they probably didn't want to use that individual's actual name. Laura Dern's in it as a a nurse that worked on the Manhattan Project, as well as cameos by people like Fred Thompson, Greg Clark, uh, and Natasha Robinson. A lot of other famous real-life scientists pop in here, here and there, not like cameos, although some have them, but not the ones I'm mentioning, but Ed Teller. Enrico Fermi, uh, Leo uh, Szilard, and a bunch of others, but not some big ones. Like Hans Bethe is in here, and I thought that was kind of interesting because he's such a fascinating character. Uh, and then some other ones like Ernest Lawrence, who was involved in the uranium enrichment, but I guess he wasn't actually there. Also, no women scientists. Uh, entirely <laughs> devoid from, from this film itself. But... Women in general were pretty devoid in the film. <laughs> So let's get into the, the the plot of the movie here. Um, if you haven't seen this movie from 19, what I say, 89, 86, um, go out and watch it. Um, it's available if you have Amazon Prime. You can stream it for free. I don't know how you all watched yes. it, but yep. Amazon's been pushing me to watch this movie for a long time. So I'm glad I finally got around to it. But as, as usual, spoiler warning, we're going to get into it. A general named Groves, a scientist named Oppenheimer. You got one job, Doctor. Give me the bomb. Worlds apart. I can do it without you. Well, if you do, and something goes wrong, critical! Brought together to change the world forever. Three, two, one. Paul Newman, Fat Man and Little Boy, rated PG-13, starts Friday, October 20th at a theater near you. Who wants to start us off in terms of talking about kind of where we are at the beginning of this film? Aaron, do you want to take the first crack at it? Sure. So the film starts with General Leslie Groves being told that he's going to work on the Manhattan Project, which was not really his idea of contributing to the Second World War. He was looking a little bit more for some combat, and he was given a nice Pentagon cake, <laughs> which is quite extravagant, and actually ended up smashing it in frustration. And so he was tasked with running the Manhattan Project, and he had to get the scientists who would see this new innovative idea forward. And I didn't realize it was Leo Zillard who was in the tub, because <laughs> at the center we also have our sister organization, the Council for a Living World, just started by Leo Zillard. And the, oh, okay. the tub tendency was left out of my education. <laughs> so, that was, so that was a good new fun fact. That is really cool. Um, 
Yeah, so he gets this Pentagon cake because the thing that he's known for before this was building the Pentagon. He had just finished. I don't think it had formally, say, open, uh, but it was like a soft open, you know, like a like a soft open of a restaurant. They've had the Pentagon was up and running. And um, here's what here's what I got some a quote from his. Uh, for some reason, I own his biography, um, <laughs> which I think is called Now It's Now It Can Be Told or something like that. He says, uh, I was probably the angriest officer in the United States Army when they told him about his new job. Men like to recall in later years what they said at important uh, or possibly historic moments in their lives. I remember only too well what I said to General Stromville the day he told me that he would have to work on the project that would win the war. I said, oh, and he doesn't mention throwing a cake, but I imagine that expresses the sentiment pretty well. Boy, what is that? He didn't want to be involved in this. What do they call it? A dead end boondoggle? I think, and it was really indicative of the tension between the military and the scientists that persists throughout the film, mm-hmm. uh, and the value that the scientists were really, from my understanding, interested intellectually in the possibility of this new technology, and the military is very interested in using it. Mm-hmm. I thought it was really interesting. Um, as we were watching the movie back and forth, uh, Aaron and I were sort of giving text messages hot on, takes. on <laughs> hot takes on what was happening. I thought it was pretty interesting, this grappling that maybe wasn't explained all that well in the film, but definitely was an underlying point that there was this duty to country, whether that could be as a scientist or mm-hmm. whether you're doing that through boots on the ground. And I think, you know, at the beginning of it, when uh, Leslie Groves is fairly upset, it seems like this is the next task that he's been given, even though it ultimately has changed quite literally the world as we know mm-hmm. it, that it, it didn't seem to him as, I don't know, maybe dutiful enough or, or strong enough to be standing up for your country during this war, doing this particular thing. As where a lot of the theater assignment. Right. As where many scientists, I think, felt the exact opposite, which is that they had the chance to contribute fight for their country in this sort of strange way through science without ever having to leave the United States and put their own boots on the ground. And um, the way my parents and grandparents have described my great-grandfather is he saw it as Mm. a duty to his country to be a part of the Manhattan Project, and I think many people would have have agreed with that. Well, once General Groves finally kind of uh, calms down, Right, he gets he, he he takes that perspective and he goes and he meets someone that they said you've got to talk to got to talk to to Leo to Leo Cillard. Uh, how does he meet him? Right, you mentioned that in a bathtub. In here, in here. Cillard. Cillard, General Groves, I was expecting you. Come in, come in. Forgive me. Sometimes I get stuck in here, metaphorically. I've read this. Is it possible? What I wrote is possible. Probably inevitable. Separate uranium-235, then arrange for two portions of the element to be brought together suddenly so that the resulting mass undergoes a spontaneous self-generating reaction. And if this was the epicenter of that explosion, all of Chicago, you could see from here, would disintegrate. At the moment, all we have are theories, concepts, inspirations, and conclusive results. if we can make this device... Spoken the crowds. Yes. Germany has the scientific capability. In general, we need leadership here. I wish there was more of him in the movie. He's a Hungarian-German-American physicist uh, who was, you know, the person who really thought up the idea of nuclear chain reaction uh, nine years prior to this meeting at the tub. He fled Austria during World War I and then fled Germany during World War II. I think he hung out in London for a bunch because he was... 
he was he just met a he had a, went to a conference and they were talking about nuclear you know science and he was like wow really if we could just hit something with an ad, a neutron how would that work and how could you could sustain a reaction and he was crossing the street in London and pauses kind of right before he steps on the street and just it flashes in his mind right that's the story that he tells and he realizes oh we can actually do this if we create a supercritical chain reaction and use a neutron breakup of an atom turns out multi- more than one neutron pops out of that and then you got some sort of quick explosion and energy and all that stuff he crosses the street i think eventually and decides that um he even though he's you know i think it's just part of this patriotism or at least trying to not let hitler get get a bomb in the future he realizes that uh, okay i'm gonna you know later on in his life he advocated for nuclear arms reductions and arms control treaties and stuff but at this point he said if we build the bomb and if everyone gets the bomb then there's going to have to be a world government that gets created to manage this this the particular you know problem he he didn't imagine a world where two countries would have nuclear weapons and they wouldn't decide to put them under international control right he didn't meet someone yet like Leslie Grove who would think that that idea was you know crazy <laughs> um so in this bathtub scene, he describes what a uranium gun type bomb design. Groves <laughs> thinks about it. You know, like, oh yeah, this actually could work. And kind of runs out of the room before Leo is able to talk anything more about his, about what you know, how what how he could help. Uh, and this one thing I wanted to note here is that from from Leo's biography, which is called Genius in the Shadows, which I recently picked up, he says that the baiting of brass hats, which is like you know trying to go after the, the generals, was one of Leo's self-proclaimed hobbies. Uh, he and Groves were at odds ever since um, the Army Corps of Engineers took command of the bomb project. I think, uh, was it from their first meeting, the straight-laced and steady Groves had found Leo uh, impetuous and rude. The conduct seemed outright subversive to Groves, and within a month he had ordered uh, Leo transferred back to New York, and apparently he even tried to have him jailed and deported as an enemy alien. This was, uh, he mentions later in the movie that he he wished that he had strangled that man in the tub. And I think that was probably not that far from reality. They didn't seem to get along all that well. And also apparently the story about him being in the tub is real. Um, the bio also says that his that Leo's favorite morning routine was soaking in the tub for an hour or two to dream up ideas and schemes he may ponder and proclaim throughout the day. It's a good work environment. Yeah. Yeah. So, different different version of working from home, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> working from the tub. So, Kate, we, then we, we meet, you know, Robert Oppenheimer and his wife, Kitty, dangerously driving, you know, on their way, I guess, to meet Groves. Uh, how does this uh, introduction between these two, I guess, the, the main stars, I guess, of the movie, how did that go? Robert Oppenheimer, I actually didn't know that much about him and his wife. I didn't. I didn't know that he was married even, so I had to do a little bit of background research on that uh, as well. But yeah, so they go and they meet in the cockpit of a B-29, which is similar to the Enola Gay. And they have this conversation about the project. It, it's funny because they turn on the the airplane, and so the folks outside in this like hangar have no idea what's happening. He takes mm-hmm. it very seriously as they're having this conversation. Uh, Groves loves his information security. That's yeah. right. That's right. I mean, it, it was definitely... Um, a foreshadowing of some of the security that you would see later on at Los Alamos, I guess you could say. But Grove starts to uh, have this conversation and he mentions what's happening with, with the technology that has come up and that he's been asked to lead the project and that it needs to be 
done in sort of a secretive way, right? And this is going to be one of the biggest mm-hmm. things that happens to military technology. They're going to need to find locations for it that happen away from big cities. He asks Oppenheimer to come on, and he talks about it later in the movie as well. He says there is no project without Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer is the project. And Groves wanted Oppenheimer, it sounds like, right? But maybe he wasn't his first choice, according to a couple of things I read. They wanted some other people, but either they were either too busy with other things like maybe Ernest Lawrence could do it, but he was busy. He's the only one who can operate the cyclotrons in, in Oak Ridge or maybe um, someone else. But, you know, no one was no one had all of the skills. But a weird like Oppenheimer, what was he known for? He was known for being uh, a brilliant young you know, theorist, uh, but not really someone who was heavily versed in like experimental sciences, which is really what you'd want to have when you're inventing a bomb experimenting <laughs> yeah but it sounded like he you know he was he had all these good talents so they were going to bring him on despite some potential concerns about his uh pinkish background his um leaning potential leaning political leanings towards communist uh ideologies he he formally dated someone which we'll get into uh who was you know an actual card carrying communist and you know they weren't droves is not the kind of guy who would look on that too uh fondly but still, despite all that fact, he must have been a pretty smart guy if they're still willing to kind of take him on. Yeah, I mean, it was my understanding of Oppenheimer uh, as the selection uh, to be one of the lead scientists on the here that he was known as one of the most brilliant minds of his generation and that, you know, that he was one of very few people in the United States that could actually do what they wanted this person to do to come on and bring people together and mm-hmm. think bigger and differently about issues it is also interesting in my opinion that he is fairly young all things considered and in a in in the nuclear field right now you know we have an issue with bringing on the next generation and finding the next generation of brilliant minds they quite literally handed over the keys to the world to this person (laughs) who was fairly young to all things considered so it's in his his 30s right yeah 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 Wow, um, someone who's about to turn thirty-six. I have not gotten this far uh, <laughs> in my life. Yeah, still, still time. Um, the setting of the B twenty-nine is cool, but I think in real life they actually met like on a train, which is you know I like trains, but you know it's not a, a an airplane skiff or anything. Yeah, I was gonna say I, I'm. You're not allowed to even like bring most OUO documents and read them on the metro so I don't know why you'd be like oh so we're gonna build a nuclear weapon and we want you to run that situation we're gonna do that on a packed train from what Chicago to New York City but he decides you know he decides I think Oppenheimer's like okay I can do this I uh this 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 general guy but I could have him uh, eat it out of my hands because he needs me to do this project so I think he tells Kitty that you know yeah it's gonna suck for a while but I'm gonna run the thing and no one ever mentions that in the movie that Kitty also is a, a bit of an accomplished biologist as well in her own right. I think she was involved in some parts of the project. Uh, she was helped out with like some of the, the blood transfusions and other things while at, on site, but... Not mentioned. That was left out. <laughs> no, she was just mostly throwing house parties and things. And, and being told by yeah. Leslie Groves that some women were courageous <laughs> enough to be in the background and she apparently was not one of them. Oh. So was there Mrs. Groves? Yeah. There is. And she has the courage to stay in the background. Some men are on the planet for a purpose. This is Oppenheimer. A good wife recognizes that and is happy to smooth away. It was interesting the 
attention of how women were seen as like distracting the men and mm-hmm. not really contributing anything to the broader project. When in reality, women play such a critical role and were better than the men at Oak Ridge in creating the uranium needed because they were more accurate. And they mm-hmm. didn't, it was really a really interesting study on that on Girls in Atomic City. Yeah, they should. Um, you know, we'll get into it right at the very end. But the the focus of this movie is pretty much heavily on Los Alamos. Mm-hmm. You know, the next scene is, and Los Alamos is where the you know they they thought of how to actually build the and construct the warhead, mm-hmm. but they didn't make the material itself. That was done elsewhere. Um, so we the next scene we see is 1946, Los Alamos, New Mexico. Les Grove uh, he wants more information security, physical security, more guards, more ditches, more uh, dogs. Kind of roaming around. Uh, forget, don't concern yourself with comfort. <laughs> We're here. Whatever goes on around here is privileged information, no exceptions. No wives, no barbers, no exceptions. And he gets all the people together in a room and he says, hey, look, we... we we're here not to be comfortable. We're not here to think about stuff just forever. We're here to build a military weapon, an atomic weapon, which they call the, the gadget, which is the, the real code name, nickname. You are not here to be comfortable. You are here to go beyond the theoretical, the speculative, the fanciful. You are here to harness your God-given talent, your mind, your energy, practical pursuit of one thing, a military weapon, nuclear one, an atomic bomb. Keep the muttering just a minimum, gentlemen. The gadget sounds so, you know, I have gadgets in my pocket. I don't. So this is when we we meet John Cusack's character, Michael. Uh, He shows up to camp after a long trip, and there really is this fun interaction between him and, I forget the actor's name, but the guy who plays Dr. Cox in Scrubs. Uh, He also plays a doctor there, uh, so he knows that role pretty well. Do you like the, Michael's kind of like the everyman character, even though he's a a brilliant mind, he's our analog to to the story and, and everything. Do you like the, Michael, I think he writes in his journal a lot, lots of narration. He might be the only one that actually does narration. He was one of my my favorite characters, actually, in the movie. I think the movie tried to do a as historically accurate description as possible of uh, the Manhattan Project, which we can talk about later because I'm not positive that was true. <laughs> but uh, but they you know they took some some artistic licensing in in bringing on these composite of of a person, and they did so with with Michael. And I think. One of the things that's interesting about it is the dialogue that you see happen between him and Nurse Kathleen throughout the show. Lord Dern. Yeah, it's the first part of the of the movie, or the only part of the movie where I think there's this like internal ethical dialogue between whether or not what they're doing is right or wrong, and. I'm sure that there were plenty of people who were having that conversation with themselves, maybe internally, maybe with other people, pretty regularly throughout the creation of the nuclear weapon across the United States of the people who knew what was happening, um, not just at Los, Los mm. Alamos, obviously. But I think they do a good job of capturing it with his particular character. He's one of the more likable characters yeah. as well. So. One of the few, really. Yeah. He was more rela- I, he's definitely yeah. more relatable than the other characters, and I think he was good at humanizing them but i thought actually a little bit in contrast to the humanitarian impact discussion like the cost benefits of the project he i think covered it a little bit and then we saw a glimpse 
of Oppenheimer's proconlis at the end of the film. And I was kind of surprised that there wasn't more dialogue around that because mm-hmm. I think there was this big question of what do you do with the technology and the scientists were saying just test it, don't drop it. The military was like we should drop it. And like to what end were they each serving? And I think especially if you're talking about the movie in terms of educational purposes, yeah. I think that would have been a useful dialogue and tension to explore a little bit more deeply particularly as these people are giving up their whole lives and their family are giving up their lives for this project. And if they're willing to say, like, all right, we're done, don't use it, even though we spent all this time and money, then, like, what does that mean? Yeah, this was part of the pitch that Oppenheimer had to do when he would, you know, went on his roadshow trying to recruit people, you know, get the team together. He was, he said in his biography um, about recruiting people to come work for the project, he says, the prospect of coming to Los Alamos aroused great misgivings. It was going to be a military post. Men were asked to sign up for more or less the duration. Restrictions on travel and the freedom of families to move about would be severe. The notion of disappearing into the New Mexico desert for an indeterminate period and under quasi-military um, auspices disturbed a great number of scientists. But there was another side to it. Almost everybody knew that if it was completely successful and rapidly enough, it might determine the outcome of the war. The sense of an excitement, devotion, patriotism in the end prevailed. So it seems like it was even at the very beginning if you want to get someone to come out. It's hard enough for me as living out in Virginia to get people from D.C. <laughs> to come out. Um, can you imagine what it was like to get people to move out to New Mexico? But again, it was a world war on and people thought that this was something, something that could help with it. So the project's getting started. According to the, the movie, most of these um, debates and amongst the scientists would basically occur as someone walked angrily into a room while there were people yelling an argument uh, in, in the darkness. And it sounds like what uh, where we are at the very beginning of the project, There's they have to divide up the work. They have to come up with the physics solution. How much material do we need? Do we do uranium-235 or plutonium? I thought it was interesting. They always kept saying uranium-235, but they never said the plutonium isotope. I guess the thought there was... It's just going to be plutonium, so we don't care about what particular isotope it is. But they always, it was funny how they specify that. I a lot of background in general about the workings of a nuclear weapon, and yeah, I actually watched the movie with my dad. As someone in the field, I had enough information to put it all together, but he was kind of like, what the hell is going on? Yeah, they, so do you think they did a good job explaining they, that? They, they just, did not. And they, like, the gun type device was like briefly, it was like yeah. 10 seconds, if anything, and the uranium, the plutonium debate was just so quick. And just an overview, and I think you got the most information later in the film when there was the radiation accident where mm-hmm. it was like, oh, this is really dangerous. Mm-hmm. But up until then, if you're not familiar with the subject, it was kind of unclear what was happening. Yeah, the part where they're trying to figure out what the device will be, it has to be the right amount of size and the right amount of weight to get the right reaction, and how he squeezes the clementine, I think it's a clementine, <laughs> in his hand, and, and, and then he, just in this moment of brilliance, I mean, I suppose that is how most good ideas come about, but that didn't explain anything, yeah. and then he just Doesn't... ran into a house, and he's like, we know what we're doing now, and it's essentially implosion, I'm implosion. like, what? Oh, yeah, correct. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, so that was, that was Seth uh, Niedermeyer. Uh, he was an American physicist who, for a long time, had been advocating an implosion design. So it wasn't like he just invented it. Finally, people were like, once they thought, oh, to make that work, it's going to have to be this heavy, uh, we don't have anything that could do that. 
right? The, I think they, the, the main problems they had was, in addition to the manufacturing of the nuclear material itself, which was all done in Oak Ridge or, or Hanford. So Oak Ridge was for the uranium. Hanford was for making plutonium. They had to figure out how to get that stuff together. It, they had a 19-month deadline. That's how they much they fig- figured it was going to take. And that's when their deadline was. So before that, they have to figure out how do you make the uh, deal with two main problems, right? The weight one you mentioned, the, the gun barrel design, which I, you know, whoever wants to explain that in their best way to someone who uh, has no idea what that means, um, they, they have to solve that problem because the gun barrel is too heavy uh, for it to work or pre-detonation, which means you want to get everything just right so that it's a good sustained reaction for a short period of time. But if it's too fast, nothing actually ends up happening. So the, I think in, in real life, one of the ways they solved the gun barrel problem was I, I've loved reading this. Their estimates for how heavy, like I think it was like four inches thick of, of steel for the gun barrel design, all of that was based off of what the military was telling them. For a gun that needed to be fired again and again and again, they realized we only need to do this once. So it doesn't have to be that heavy because it will fall apart as you explode it. But as long right. as it works. Why are we even talking about gun barrels to begin with? What is, what's unique about this uranium design? Why do we need a, why are they talking about a gun barrel to begin with? It's gun type is you have the uranium here of an explosion. Two pieces of no, uranium. You, yeah, sh- you shoot it. Yes. Yeah, they like, you're shooting them down the barrel so that they hit one another and create the chain reaction and create a nuclear explosion. Right. Which is a smashing yeah. thing. You're basically smashing it together. I think it's like shooting a donut towards a peg so that it gets squished together and compact enough. Because if you have, if you just keep two things, two pieces of uranium in a super critical compact formula, because the reason why we're talking about compact, right, is the neutrons, if they have lots of open space, they're just never going to hit another atom. So you get them really close together. You surround them with reflecting material like what's beryllium and others, um, and that kind of keeps everything going. So, but you don't want to store it that way because right. it'll just go boom in your pocket. Right. So, so I think, yeah, right. So the idea that you, I mean, they were thinking about how the chain reaction was designed initially, which was separating the atoms. And then once you collided them, that would create this supercritical chain reaction. And thus you would have something the likes of which we'd never seen before in an explosion. Mm-hmm. And a good name for a podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so you would have, you know, the one side with its own separate mass over here, keeping itself from essentially having its own reaction and the other on the other side. And then in the device, you would shoot it at the other side and that would cause the reaction, but it would keep it more secure to transport accordingly. And they realized that they could only do this with the uranium. Yep. Um, which was an interesting thing because they had to create a different design for the plutonium. That they were- plutonium was the, the fizzle problem, the pre-detonation. It has too much spontaneous neutrons that get popped out. So this was this gun design. That was the one that was used first. They never actually tested it. It was the one that was used against Hiroshima. Yeah, so that was the little boy design. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned, they had to solve, well, what's another way to solve this um, problem of the weight was they decided, well, we could either smash two things together or we can take something that's like, say, the size of a basketball and we squish it to the size of um, a golf ball. And how do we do that? We well, you can either squish it like in your hand, but if you're not that strong, they'll do conventional explosives to be able to pop all that stuff together. So I think that that's a fascinating description, and that becomes the, one of the main running problems is, is how do you go about and, and do that? Because no one had ever thought that was something you needed to solve. How do Because you, you also have to do it pretty much – it has to be uniform. You can't squish more of it on one side, and that doesn't work all that well. As we're, we're trying to kind of catch up and understand what is, what's the science happening here, um, someone who's not like us that doesn't have the background in it, uh, it's a, certainly a lot going on. But what, the one thing we do get is 
we get the sense of the human reaction to the project itself. We know that Groves is making scientists pretty upset with all this information security, guard dogs, um, FBI investigations on the people's past, their censorship of their letters. And in particular, I know in real life, a lot of the European scientists, because this is really a lot of the people here were formerly from Europe and had left during you know Nazi occupation. A lot of them didn't like the living situations, the barbed wire fencing and everything, it reminded them of concentration camps. Hans Bede in particular was pretty upset uh, at all of this, kind of given his background. It also affects, uh, you know, Oppenheimer. He's on the phone with someone we mentioned earlier, uh, the, the, the quote-unquote kind of card-carrying communist, Gene Tatlock, who was someone he had had an affair with. I think it was still ongoing at that particular time period. He's on the phone with that person, says it's very sad that they can't meet up, but they probably can't hang out. His call gets picked up by army intelligence. They want to kick him off the project, but Groves at least is backing him up. But he says, look, you have to stop this. You have to go and, and break up. And eventually they do, right? They, they spend, he goes to, I think, San Francisco, hangs out with his brother, Frank, who I didn't, movie doesn't talk about this. Frank, his brother also heavily got involved with the, the bomb project later on. He was with Oppenheimer at, with the, the testing, the Trinity test. But anyway, so he's with Frank. He hangs out uh, with Gene one more time. They spend the night together, but then uh, then they break up. But uh, so that's all happening. There's, I think that's one of the better parts of the story is at least describing a little bit more of a human side to some of the scientists, in particular Oppenheimer. But all while this is happening, right, we talked about the implosion device. It's not working all that well. They can't get the compression explosion to be uniform. There's some big accident at the test site. And I think this is where I found this particular, um, at least this made up story, but it's an interesting story of accidents that are happening at the project. So I wanted to look into this. So want someone... I think he's an army officer. Um, one of the detonations goes off unexpectedly, so someone loses their legs. Uh, and Michael tries to save this individual, and he and is able to, but also gets hurt a little bit. And this is where he goes to the infirmary. He meets Laura Dern's uh, character, the nurse, Kathleen, and they dance a little bit. They're starting to form a little bit of a relationship. Um, and I was wanting to look into it as it was as real, because... It's a dangerous, you know, project. You get that many people together, eventually something's going to go wrong, right? I didn't find any example of any sort of implosion detonation accident, but uh, Alex Wellerstein, I don't know if you guys have run into him yet, his blog is great. Was it Nuclear Secrecy? He went through using a kind of declassified information, found out that there were 24 fatal accidents on the Manhattan Project. This was uh, something he mapped out in 2015. He says around half of the 500,000 or so people employed by the project were employed in construction. As a result, most of the injuries and fatalities associated with making the bomb were construction-related variety. Heavy machinery, ditches, collapsing buildings. I'll just mention a couple of the examples because this is interesting because most people imagine, oh, something goes wrong with the bomb project. It must be like a radiation-related incident or the bomb exploded and people got hurt but it was things like a bulldozer operator who had to build a, a town had to build a road to go basically to nowhere they had to build this thing so quickly he, um the bulldozer got crushed by a rock while he was trying to build this thing at night so they can get the road there and quick enough and it's even incidents like a soldier who fell on a drainage ditch at night after drinking there's a, lots of examples of that three janitors had a, a little bit of a party um got drunk on wine that they mixed with antifreeze but it's even sad things like uh you know there were lots of families there so there was a child who was on a canoe uh age 10 um and capsized and and drowned so there's lots of those incidents but never anything about someone's leg exploding but it's reflective i think of the danger that was involved in the project did your family ever tell stories or i never heard of any hazards specifically related uh to that 
uh, to to my great grandfather working at the at the Hanford site. But one, I mean, two thoughts. First, it doesn't really surprise me. I think most of the time, even now with our own U.S. military, you do hear of people getting hurt from time to time on military bases or overseas or whatever. And I do think more often than not, those things are car accidents or something going wrong with a test field mm-hmm. or somebody getting a DUI. I mean, those those are just life things that happen when you have 500,000 people working on a project in a condensed area. There are going to be accidents that happen that aren't always. Especially according to the movie, about 25% of the time people are spending in New Mexico, it's cocktail parties. That sounds right? about like, right. Yeah. There are more scenes of cocktail parties than there are, um, you know, of people in labs in this yeah. movie. Yeah, which is you know good. It shows that their people are their people. They're right. not just uh, you know people who they're not only wearing lab coats. They are also wearing cocktail outfits and things. I wonder if all of the Manhattan Project sites were like that. I think one thing that's interesting, so in the in Richland, Washington, I showed Erin this when she came home with me, but uh, they have what, what are called the alphabet houses, and so they're still all there. I lived in an L house when I was uh, growing up, but they, they were just the same, like, simply manufactured homes where everybody who worked out at the Hanford site lived and was assigned mm-hmm. to one of these homes. Some of them were duplexes, some of them were single-story, like, family homes, but... Um, Depending on your rank, you are given either an A, B, C, D, or whatever according house, and they still have them. So they're like hist- these historical homes where you can drive through these neighborhoods. So when, in the movie, when they're talking about you know setting up tents, and Leslie Groves is so annoyed that he has to like <laughs> give housing to these people, that was in contrast a lot to what I had seen because it, you know like I lived in one of these homes that somebody who worked at the Manhattan Project site at the Hanford uh, site lived in. So. That's really interesting. Um, the housing community I live in is uh, made was made for civilians who were working at the recently opened up Pentagon. It is like that. Every house is pretty much the same from the outside. It still looks like it does. So here's where we're at in the movie. We're eight months to the deadline. Oppenheimer, he likes Seth's idea of uh, implosion design, but Seth just can't get that done. He's not his job, right? He's He thought of the idea. He squashed the Clementine in his hand. It's not his job to build it. Oppie, some way I have to focus... I have to focus the shockwave. Look at me. God, I'm running out of ideas. This just sounds like an excuse for not thinking, Seth. If you can't do it, if you're out of your depth, tell me and I'll find somebody else. No! Yes. Server needs you back at the lab right now. Oppie, you said it yourself, Seth. Focus. I know that somewhere there's somebody working on a way to focus an explosive shockwave. And I'm going to find them. You just keep working. Jesus! You know, if Oppie doesn't let up, He's going to implode. He brings in someone um, to help solve this problem with the an explosive expert. Uh, This individual, I think, is interesting. I think they mentioned his name at one point, but uh, and I I definitely cannot pronounce this. But uh, George uh, Kistakowski, he's a Ukrainian. Good, yeah. (laughs) He's a Ukrainian chemist. Um, He was actually involved in the bomb project, but uh, off-site somewhere else for a while. He was brought in to be the closer on the lens, but he was he came in late. So Seth and another um, scientist, or I think it was another army officer, were, were at each other's heads to get this project done. And he kind of comes in at the last second and it's like, I think I got an idea. But they didn't really 
welcome him all that much. So even within the scientific community, there was a little bit of conflict. But uh, what he really brought into the fold here was he decided, oh, well, what if we start building uh, casings and actually using new manufacturing techniques to make the uh, high explosive setup more precise? And it turns out that was the trick. So they decided, you know, we'll, we'll go ahead and this, this will work. And they test it and it does work. Unfortunately for Oppenheimer, pretty much at the same time, he gets this telegram that says that Gene Tatlock um, had committed suicide. But the interesting thing that also happens is, is that Groves gets a message too. He gets a message, uh, an urgent message from Germany. It's a coded, it seems like. Mother had no baby, not ever pregnant. Doctors pronounce her infertile which he realizes is code for the fact that Germany never really had a bomb project. They weren't really close to building the bomb. They had some heavy water uh, facility, producing facilities, which you need to be able to generate plutonium, but they weren't you know, anywhere near that project. It's fascinating. I don't want to get into it too much here, but we, uh, we covered this on two pre previous podcast episodes we did. So if you're interested in that, check out an episode we did on a Star Trek episode called City at the Edge of Forever and the Amazon show, The Man in the High Castle. Because we always talk about that when we talk to high school students. We started the Manhattan Project response to Germany and it turns out Germany was sure. never yeah. close right. to the bomb. Yeah. Right. So Japan was probably closer than Germany was, but still not too, not too close. Uh, oh, but so Groves doesn't tell anybody about this. Sir, is it wise? I'm in suppressing this. Well, you tell me, Colonel. It's delicate stuff, given my long hairs, my prima donnas. Take Hitler out of the equation. I might just run out of stink. We can give this country the biggest stick in the playground. And I intend to do that. Um, and it even gets to the point where the Germany surrenders. The scientists are trying to figure out, hey, look, Victory is, 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 is secured. We're partying. We're having celebrations. Do we still need to continue to build the bomb when the, the person who we thought we were going to have to use it against, that we have to race them to, is no longer there? But Groves and, and Oppenheimer, they talk about this thing. They, they literally dance, dance for a little while and dance around this issue. And Groves says, no, we need to build the bomb. Make them work. Man, you got something. An irresistible something. Just the threat. They're ours. You know, sometimes, just standing here, I keep wondering, are we working on them or are they working on us? Give them dignity, Doctor. Then we can start talking about who can do what and what they mean. Teller, uh, Ed Teller, who was heavily involved in the pushing for the hydrogen bomb, the thermonuclear bomb. He was one of the people who came up with the design for that. He says that the scientists want to have the talk about the bomb. There's people like Leo Villard. He has a petition trying to get scientists to be on the record for morally opposing the bomb. As you mentioned earlier, they want to just test it. They don't want to actually use it against the only target that's left here, which is Japan. How does this um, debate look in the movie? I thought it was a really interesting debate, and at Oppenheimer's house, scientists were arguing about it, and there were some who were saying it was immoral to go forward. There were others who were saying we should just test it for posturing purposes, and others were okay with using it. I think what's most indicative is if you look at the nuclear non-proliferation community now, there are so many organizations created by these scientists mm -hmm. who were critical in creating nuclear technology, saw what it could do, and immediately worked to prevent its use. And I think the movie covered that a little bit, but not entirely in terms of the own the scientist's apprehension with the thing that they created. And you can really see the tension within that because when Groves finds out, he is less than pleased at the scientist and it's kind of 
Gross basically tells them to stay in their lane, and they're right. there to make the technology, and the military's there to decide whether or not it's used. Don't waste the $2 billion that we spent on this. Exactly. And so I think that was really interesting, but I wish there had been a little bit more about it in the movie, because that's something that definitely has transcended time and continues now, and you have that mm-hmm. tension between whose responsibility is it, who's taking the moral responsibility for nuclear weapons, and their production, their use, and things like that, but also... How do you deal with it? How do you integrate the conversation? Yeah, Groves um, doesn't want this debate to keep going. Uh, He learns as well that Japan is thinking about surrendering, not unconditionally. So he's excited about that because that means that it will be a little bit more time before the U.S. accepts anything. So he tells his team to push harder on Oppenheimer, use those particular, you know, communist roots and things like that where, you know, put the squeeze on him a little bit, make him like the Clementine so that um, Oppenheimer will pressure on everybody else. I think it's interesting because, you know, from the from the get-go, there's this conversation sort of at the beginning where all the secrecy is taking place and Oppenheimer comes to Groves in, in the movie and says, you know, we're scientists, we thrive on having these conversations, we need to be able to work together, not, not separately, if we're going to achieve this in mm-hmm. the time that she wanted. And Groves kind of gives into that. In the same way, you can imagine that if you're having these kind of intellectual conversations, that's all also where people start to pop up and say what the hell are we doing i mean is this is this a good idea what like do we have to do this and they really gloss over in the movie the fact that the united states originally pursued the technology because germany we thought was also pursuing the technology i mean that's it's a snippet in the movie and it, it mm. kind of mentions it but then it sort of glosses over the fact that that is not even an issue anymore and now the only person that or the only country now that we need to be worrying about is is japan and there isn't even a a dialogue really delving into the the change in the dynamics Mm -hmm. that had happened now i think they do a good job of trying just parsing the surface of what's happening here but uh it comes back to what aaron and i have talked about before which is like how do you talk about all the different complexities of the issues of nuclear weapons from the beginning all the way to the end and all the way to where we are right now. There's just so many angles mm-hmm. and facets to this conversation and to the debate. And uh, I don't know how you how you can even get into it in, in its in de- depth and entirety. But yeah. they, they, didn't, they didn't do the world's best job. <laughs> no, I think the closest they get was at one point, um, Michael says, I've got a brother who's fighting in the Philippines. This would be a great way to bring him home. Uh, but speaking of Michael, uh, this is where we get into a pretty difficult scene. I think this is one of the best scenes in the movie is Michael. He does what they call the uh, they, they mentioned it previously. They called it the tickling the dragon's tail test. The first one you see where he drops a piece of, I think, uranium down. That was, a I think, a different test, the, the drop test. But the, the actual um, test itself here, I'll describe it really quickly, is... He's got two spheres, right? Spheres of, they don't really, do they say it? It's spheres of beryllium, which are things that you can use to reflect neutrons. And he's got a subcritical mass of plutonium in the middle. And he's holding these spheres separate from each other because uh, if you close them together, you get lots of critical reactions and it releases radiation, which you don't want. You just want a little bit. So he's got two screwdrivers, two long screwdrivers, which is not the proper test protocol. He's supposed to be using an entirely different tool. We'll get into a second why he he's doing that. He's trying to hold them a little bit. He's trying to just fine-tune the gadget, how much neutrons get released when you have this level of material. Someone drops a cup of coffee. Critical! 
kills him. The sphere partially closes, releases a ton of radiation. Michael takes it with his hand and, and, and pulls it off so that everything stops. And there's this very, I think, a crazy uh, moment where he says, everybody stop. Here's some chalk. Mark where you are in the room and leave. Nobody move. Don't anybody move. Damn it. Take out everything metal. Drop it on the floor. Mark the position you're standing in. Get out. And he stays and calculates the fact that, okay, I'm dead. Everyone else is fine. And he really saved everybody by pulling that off and, and stopping the reaction. It was only, a, what, two, three seconds, pretty much? Everybody should make it. Except me. I'm dead. And this does reflect something that did that did happen. In the movie, this is before we've tested the nuclear bomb. In real life, there was a, a famous Los Alamos researcher named Luis uh, Sloten. This happened in, in real life after the Trinity test. I think it was in May of 46. He did this test a bunch of times, often in his cowboy boots, jeans. He was known for being someone who really pushed the envelope. Because they're in frontier land, they might as well get the work done, but not necessarily as safely. This happens. He, he builds a little... A fort of tungsten blocks which help to cover and shield you from the radiation but it's happened the same thing uh, as it does in the movie there was a quick flash of light after a screwdriver slipped less than a few tenths of a second um, there were three quadrillion fission reactions and he received uh, 2100 rem of radiation 500 is enough to kill you uh, and that's what happens to luis uh, in real life about nine days later uh, from the radiation sickness after this happened in real life, they decided to change the procedure. The personnel are now kept a quarter mile away from the plutonium instead of right up uh, up on it. And the, the kind of the sad uh, precursor to this is that Enrico Fermi, who we see a lot in the movie, he saw this happen. Uh, like when he was doing the test successfully and he said, Luis, if you keep doing this, you're going to be dead within a year if you keep doing the experiments this way. And sure enough, that's kind of what happened. And obviously, Lauren Dern, they've started to develop a relationship in the movie. Uh, she's really worried for Michael. And he, they apparently say, you know, no one knows what's going to happen. It's the first time anyone has ever received this kind of a dose of radiation. In real life, it, it's obviously after the atomic bombs uh, were, were dropped. So he wasn't the first, but the movie shows you what happens. That's probably one of the best choices I think that they made was showing the effects of radiation because they couldn't do that. Right. As they told the movie, because the movie ends pretty quickly after the bomb is tested. I, I think it's also really interesting, though, because it is demonstrative of the fact that a lot of people didn't know truly what the effects mm -hmm. were going to be. And there were certainly people not using precautions that we use today when we're, we're dealing with radioactive material, because the tests that, that happened out at Los Alamos, which happens later, um, people were watching them from not that far away, just... Sitting on the ground, yeah. like crisscross applesauce, not thinking two times about it. We certainly did not realize the precautions that needed to be taken. They put on suntan lotion. Oh, yeah, you know. I think a fun date night, you go watch the bombs. That's right. Tested. So. But I think it was also indicative of how little we understood the decision to drop the bombs. Hmm. Is what we didn't really understand what it meant. And those who did. Yeah. Didn't sway their decision per se, but I think it was really interesting how how the movie depicted the lack of information we had about radiation. We'd never even seen one of these things detonate right. before, and that's why we're getting to the the. I guess this is the climax of the movie. We get to the Trinity test site, and so Trinity is the the code name for the test. And I actually never really knew why they called it Trinity. I had read this book a long time ago, but I think this thing never clicked in my head. According to Brotherhood of the Bomb by Greg Herkin 
which was given to me on my last day of working at the Arms Control uh, Association. I just realized, I forgot that they gave me that book because I opened it up and it had a little inscription. And I'm like, oh, that's really nice. Um, <laughs> according to that book, it was a secret tribute from Oppenheimer to Gene Tatlock. Uh, he says that it was based on a poem, a sonnet by John Doan, which is uh, Batter My Heart person god for you as yet but knock breathe shine and seek to mend that i may rise and stand overthrow me and bend your force to break blow burn and make me new and i guess three person god trinity it's what he ended up coming up with and that's what he told um he didn't tell him about gene tatlock but he told that story about the poem eventually to groves you know we, so we get this uh, i think a really interesting shot of them assembling the test device in elmer gordo new mexico so off site now from los alamos out from the outside and you see everybody working and lowering the core i guess through the maybe the bomb assembly into the the test there wasn't actual bomb casing but a test device type thing. I thought that was a really cool shot. It's a little scary how it was just duct taped together. (laughs) Yeah. They had plenty of of magical duct tape. We get this really great scene with Dr. Cox and Oppenheimer, who's confronting Oppenheimer on the petition. Hey, your friend Michael's dying. He gave you this petition. Are you going to do anything about it? Oppenheimer says no. And Dr. Cox gets really upset. He starts talking about human uh, experiments that were conducted in real life on people who did not know what was happening. Apparently, they will eventually start dosing people who were in hospitals and uh, mental patients and people who they apparently had terminal illnesses. They were secretly dosed with radiation. Now, wait a minute, goddammit, Oppenheimer. I got a friend falling apart in there who thinks you got all the answers because that's what you let him think. You did. Now, do you really know what the crisis going on in this place? Is the whole thing out of control? If you're trying to make a particular point here, what is it? I have spent the last two years of my life putting up with all your security and your secrecy and your control. And now I don't think all that bullshit was to keep what's going on in this place from the Germans or the Japanese or even the Russians. I think it's to keep it from ordinary American Jackson Jills because they may not happen to like what's going on in this place. Ordinary American people, they don't want to know what's going on here. The only thing that they want to know is that their sons are coming home alive and I'm doing everything in my power to see that they do. Like Oak Ridge, where they're injecting mentally ill and old, uncomprehending people with huge doses of plutonium. Look, I don't know anything about Oak Ridge, but if you want to ask a question about what's happening here, you ask this. Will it be big enough? Big enough to scare the hell out of all of us and make us stop and think? Big enough to stop all war forever? You want to ask a question, you ask that. Look at I. He calls that out. He talks about the secrecy that's involved in the Bond project. And I think it's one of the most powerful moments in the the movie is, is the secrecy being done to not let the Russians know about it or not let the Americans know about it, kind of what's happening. And Oppenheimer is told by Dr. Cox. Look at I've seen Oak Ridge, all right? And that place wasn't built to make one or two bombs. It was built to make thousands of them. And pretty soon everybody's going to have a bomb. They will. And what are we going to do with them? Sit around, wait till they go off until boom, and then we got ourselves one world full of Michael Merriman's dying from the inside out. Is that what you're looking for? Because that's the future you've made for us. Oppenheimer, you ought to stop playing God because you are not good at it, and the position is taken. And Michael dies in a, a very gruesome manner, kind of right after that. Yeah, on the on the how gruesome Michael's death is as yeah. well. I. Aaron and I have had conversations about how they show radiation in the HBO show Chernobyl. And, you know, it is incredibly gruesome. But at the same time, I think that's one of the better things that they do in the movie that we agreed on, that it is gruesome and you need to see it. And part of the conversation that we want to explain without scaring the crap out of high school students either is 
not again to make them feel one way or another, but it it is a real weapon that causes horrific, horrific mm. effects to somebody. It's you know not any weapon is bad, but what a nuclear weapon does to a human being is terrifying and terrible, and you should know that, and you, it shouldn't be glossed over. And it transcends generations. Like, the effects are still seen today, and I think that's something that's also left out of the conversation. It's how do you portray that to high school students when it is so gruesome, but it is the reality, and what is the responsibility to depict that? Well, there's so many movies, and I've seen a lot of them through this podcast, where the, a bomb will go off, and it's like, oh, yeah, that was a big bomb. But there's no sense of any of the other things that are involved in it. You know, we talking about the you working at the center. Jeff Wilson has been on our podcast a number of times, and we covered Chernobyl on it. It was a, a three-hour episode where we went into that show pretty in detail. We, we, you know, we talked about that where they do demonstrate it, and then other movies like Starship Troopers, where there are nuclear weapons that go off and they're just nothing, um, because that's how they were described, and it's just really kind of nothing that gets involved. It's just a big bomb, and I think hopefully people, they, they see this movie, and if they take anything away from it, it's radiations can be pretty dangerous. Now, don't get so scared of radiation that Radiation's everywhere. It's in concrete. It's in buildings. You eat a banana. Yeah. It's all about scale, but nuclear weapons, yeah, they uh, they can inflict something pretty bad, and it's long-lasting. Yeah, and the juxtaposition, though, of, you know, are you keeping this secret from the other Russians, countries? Yeah. yeah, from the Russians, from, from Germany, or are you keeping it from Americans? And that whole conversation of playing God while somebody is clearly dying is, is a pretty strong point that they do a good job of. So. Yeah, uh, well, because... Oppenheimer and Groves, they're single-minded. It's raining, there's thunderstorms at the test site, and they just refuse to even consider the idea of delaying the test. At one point, someone says, if there's rain and there's fallout, it's going to spread the fallout everywhere. And he says, I don't care. Fortunately, I guess, from this perspective, the the weather eventually does clear up in real life. Groves told the meteorologist on the project when the meteorologist said you'll have a two-hour window at this time during the day between 5 and 6 a.m. Groves told the meteorologist, I will hang you if you are incorrect. So we get our, we get our detonation. It's at 5.29 a.m. on July 16th. That's way earlier than I tend to wake up. The scientists place bets in it ahead of time about whether or not the test would set the world on fire. The Literally the air, right? The nitrogen on fire. Um, there's a local radio signal that keeps interrupting the countdown, uh, playing some ballet music. All that stuff is true. So it's interesting little tidbits that they didn't have to invent in their head. And then we get the, the actual image of the test. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. What do you think about that? We get Oppenheimer, right? He looks with his crazy goggles. His like mouth is vibrating because of the shockwaves that comes in. Is it compelling? Is that a, what do you guys think of the, the tests? I think it was a powerful image, especially with his like mouth boiling. I remember kind of showing you the, the power of the air blast. Um, I, when I was watching with my dad, I was explaining, I was like, oh, there's like the fireball, then there's the air radius, and going into all these details, I don't think he necessarily cared about. It looks like there's this viral video about uh, an older man who puts a like a leaf blower on his mouth and it yeah. makes his mouth move and his while his wife in the background is like what are you doing it had that look that's to what it. Oppenheimer looked like yep. yeah it was and I think I really did like the lead up to when they were about to drop the bomb and they were debating whether or not the atmosphere would get set on fire um and the fact that they still did it 
And they mm-hmm. were wondering if maybe they were going to end life on Earth, but let's see what happens. And let's put suntan lotion on first. Yeah, just in case, we'll put some zinc on our nose, and then we'll be set. <laughs> so I think that was really, uh, really interesting. I don't think it's really that important, but according to um, Oppenheimer biography called American Prometheus, he was actually lying face down in the ground outside of the command bunker, about 10,000 yards from ground zero. So he wasn't like in a bunker looking at a little peephole wearing goggles. A few people got actual goggles. Most people were given really thick gloves and the lens of a welder's helmet. Imagine you have a helmet and you actually have the lens in it. People were just given the, the lens. And they were told to put their face down. If they wanted to look at it, they had to go like this and hold it above their eyeballs. But they weren't actually given goggles or masks. I think later on people got, you can see pictures of people wearing them. But at that time, they were like, I don't know, just put this in front of your face and don't look. I saw the testing facility in New Mexico. Um, we, we drove out to the testing uh, flats. And you you can see like this little patch of on the side of the road where they're just like these wooden stumps that people were just sat on the stumps hmm. to watch out on the field and it just seems so like you're just watching a baseball game from afar or something <laughs> and it, it's actually mind-blowing because yeah there are these entire conversations going on taking bets of you know are you going to light the world on fire what's going to happen are we all going to die with you have no idea just straight up wild card what's going to happen but you just let people sit on these wooden stones to just, yeah or, yeah it's crazy well, this is what an army general who saw Oppenheimer as this, as this took place. Here's what he, he saw in Oppenheimer's face. For the last few seconds, he stared directly ahead. And when the announcer shouted, now, there came a tremendous burst of light, followed by shortly thereafter the deep growling roar of the explosion. Oppenheimer's face relaxed into an expression of tremendous relief. I guess his brother Frank said that he doesn't remember exactly what Oppenheimer said afterwards, but I think it was like it worked. And then they got all excited. They started passing around bottles of uh, uh, whiskey and champagne and had a, pretty, you know, had a pretty good day. Of course, the movie shows this essentially like a championship parade. I mean, people who live in Washington, D.C. have been experiencing a lot of championship parades recently. It looked like that to me. I mean, he's on a Jeep and they're kind of putting their hands out like they just won something. While in contrast, Laura Dern and Dr. Cox are starting to release the birds and other test animals that they were doing testing on while reflecting on the loss of Michael. So it's an interesting little back and forth. I think at one point Groves and Oppenheimer congratulate each other with a little fist bump and a, a nod. And the movie ends on that very positive note. There's two quick things at the end. The, there's just closing text. It says that there was the bombing of Japan, that Oppenheimer opposed the hydrogen bomb, the super, but was stripped of his security clearance. He died of cancer in 67. Groves lost control of the nuclear arms program, but he was a business executive until he died of heart disease in 1970. And that's the how the movie ends. I was really surprised that they didn't include Oppenheimer's quote, I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. I thought there was an incredible amount of restraint. Right. They didn't do that. Apparently he, did, he said that in an interview. I was surprised to not see him just say it. I thought they would have closed with at the end when they kind of had those clips about what ha- would happen later. But then the movie just ended. I think it's the first thing about Oppenheimer that has not included that quote. Yeah, Oppenheimer was a big, you know, in addition to science, he was, he read a lot, a lot of like uh, Eastern philosophy and that's from the, the Gita. Yeah, it's fascinating that they didn't put that in there. Uh, so that's the movie. Let's, uh, I have a few things to talk about that I'd love to get your, your thoughts on about the kind of the nuke plots overall talk a little bit about the actual movie itself and then we'll wrap up so the first question i had was um how well do you think kate that the movie portrays the actual manhattan project 
overall. Obviously, it focuses pretty much exclusively at Los Alamos, doesn't really care what happens at, at Oak Ridge and Hanford. If anything, though, what work that was done there, and I'm not trying to butter you up and your grandfather, but like the work done at those sites were equally, if not more important than the actual work that was done at Los Alamos, because the material continues today to be the big barrier. Yeah, well, I think I think overall, they did a they did a pretty good job of staying close to what was happening in the Manhattan Project, especially at Los Alamos. I think it was an interesting decision in telling the story, because the story is really about the making of the two bombs, and it's not just about what's happening at Los Alamos. It's about the entire story, which, as you've noted several times, happened across the United States in several different areas. But it was um, the, one of the large. They had to yeah. essentially build a manufacturing industry. Right. They don't talk about Oak Ridge. They don't talk about Chicago. They don't talk about Hanford. But at the same time, it was a $30 million budget and only made $3 million. It's probably a good thing that they didn't try and go too many places because it is a really complicated story to tell. And there are a lot of moving parts to it. So I, I do think they tried to just pick this one sort of concentrated area to focus on. That said, I, you know... It amazed me because I didn't find it that entertaining of a movie in general, mm. and I couldn't figure out why, because the Manhattan Project and the building of the nuclear weapon is a fascinating story. It like is yeah. one of the most interesting stories that requires no dramatization at all. It's a fascinating story, and yet somehow, after two hours of the movie, <laughs> I was like... Okay, and that's not really how you should feel afterwards, and I can't figure out why I didn't think it was a phenomenal movie, because it had a lot of the parts of a good movie, and the story was, like, primed to be a phenomenal one, mm. but it just just didn't hit for me. Uh, uh, Aaron, how do you think the movie overall portrayed the Manhattan Project? I have very similar feelings yeah. to Kate. We are sharing our hot takes over text <laughs> while we're watching the movie together. I want to get on um, these topics. Yeah. <laughs> very quippy. I had high hopes as a nuclear nerd for a nuclear film, and I also struggled with what, why I wasn't engrossed in the film. And I think it was this weird tension between giving not enough information about some things and too much about others. It's just how they spent their time was not super productive towards creating this cohesive story. And I think focusing on Oppenheimer is fascinating because it demonstrates the tension between like communist and Americans before it even became the larger issue of the U.S.-Soviet Union competition with nuclear weapons. But yet somehow everything was just kind of touched on and not really explained. And so I think it could have been a better illustration of what was a truly fascinating time in our history and something that has implications today. Um, and I think that could have that could have been improved yeah. upon. So this movie seems to me to be uh, the kind of film that maybe if I wrote a movie, because uh, the guy who... Um, wrote this film uh one of the screenwriters bruce richardson who also wrote killing fields and another a number of you know, kind of really big films so he was asked to write a movie about the manhattan project and he was given a novel i can't figure out what novel it was but he said it was so bad and terrible in terms of accuracy it even had like a instead of oppenheimer it was they called it like um bramberger because they didn't want it he's like it's so far away they clearly wanted to make up stuff he's like he threw it away and he did his own research he says that he uh did more research, research and read more about the atomic bomb than anyone else in the world, and he wrote this story, and he wanted to tell two main things. One, he wanted to show a story where 
Leslie Groves was not meant to be like a bumbling fool, which a lot of he claims this, uh, a lot of things have told that story. You get the brilliant scientist and you got the, the grunt who's yelling at them and arguing. And he says, no, look, he mentions a BBC miniseries called Oppenheimer. that stars Sam Waterston as uh, as Oppenheimer. He says that that portrayed Groves as a bumbling idiot. He says uh, Groves has built the Pentagon. The guy is no idiot. He is highly intelligent, incredibly capable. And this is important very devious he does not like the richardson does not like groves because the main hook that he wanted to tell this story was the quote the race for the atomic bomb between nazi germany and the allied powers was bs there was no arms race and his argument is is that germany was never close japan was never close but that information only came after he was able to spend thousands of dollars from warner brothers and paramount pictures to foia all of this stuff and that was his argument was is that the bomb project uh was built on the lie of we need to build now but we know that for years prior to the actual start of the project that this was never along so that was richardson's i think his hook for this movie to try to make it interesting was that um now we know that the bomb project itself was based off of some false premises. Maybe that was what he thought was interesting. And maybe today in 2020, when we're watching this movie and we're like, oh, we know the history. We know that they were never that far along. Maybe that's why it's not as interesting. So a lot of this stuff is real and you throw it together, but it's not very focused and overall maybe not a story that holds up over time. I think what they really need is like a Lin-Manuel Miranda to kind of take a look at the Manhattan Project and just mm. make a new... A new film. It has so much potential. I think you should include all the nuances of different stories, as you mentioned. But there's just something that didn't something fully about it. click. I, I don't know if partly... I, I feel like I have pretty high expectations now just because of where film and TV has gone. And and, and the cast of this movie. And I mean, it's yeah. towards Paul, you know, Paul Newman. Yes. I mean, it's a phenomenal cast. And, and the acting was great. I mean, it wasn't even like the... It was unbelievable mm -hmm. because there was just such bad acting. That was certainly not the case. But partly, I think, I, I just kept envisioning what the film would look like if we were making it today yeah. or it, what I would add or what I would have changed. And I was annoyed with how much we also, in our hot takes, you know, we're talking about kind of how sexist the movie yeah. was yeah. in a lot of ways. And as two younger women in the field, like who focus now on bringing next-gen women into the field and caring about this issue, this is certainly not a film that you want to show those people because it no. <laughs> does a terrible job of depicting the role of women. I mean, that's why the movie is called Fat Man a little bit. Right. <laughs> apparently, his his joke on that was, well, Fat Man is, is Leslie Groves, who was between like 250 to 300 pounds, and Little Boy was um, the little bitty obedient Oppenheimer who would just do whatever Groves wanted. So that's why he called it that was because he thought that, you know, those were the, the model. It wasn't about the bombs. He was talking about the, the two characters themselves. I mean, well, let's get into that. How well do you, I mean, you already answered this question. What, what, what do, you, do you think the movie does justice to the role of women that were involved in the project? Because certainly the largest players were the people they talked about, but they weren't the only ones and they could have shown something. You mentioned the book, uh, The Girls of Atomic City by Denise Kernian. Great book on that history. But there's a bunch of people they could have mentioned that were involved in the project. There were also just women scientists. I mean, there were certainly less women scientists and physicists, but there were certainly women scientists and physicists who are 
doing this work who were in the room and they were never shown at the cocktail parties they were never shown in any of the scenes not even as like a background background person nothing (laughs) they showed them as wives and they showed them as nurses and there were even some quotes that i thought were fairly degrading the one by leslie groves about women being courageous enough to stand in the background when it was, you know, Marie Curie who first came mm-hmm. first with her husband um, in the article published that they found radium or were able to um, isolate radium. And that, I mean, to leave an entire uh, 50% of the world out of this this conversation when it, it is true there were less women involved in the project and there are still less women involved in STEM today than I think many people would like, but... It w- it seemed like an almost purposeful depiction or choice to leave them yeah. to leave them out. There could have been a, you don't need a, a ton, you know, just tell that story if you if that's really what you wanted to focus on. You could do some stuff. You could mention Diz Riddle Graves, who was a physicist who basically created the neutron reflector at the weapons core. She was at Los Alamos. She was even seven months pregnant while prepping the test site. Wouldn't that have been an interesting visual to to put into the movie, or Naomi Liversay, who was a mat- mathematician who, um, you know, was using those IBM computers, like uh, the Calutron girls. Yeah, that would have been super cool to have there. Um, I mean, that was obviously a, a big movie that came out a couple years ago. Uh, of the women at NASA. Yeah, the rocket scientists. Uh, uh, hidden figures. Hidden figures. So clearly, that story is is super interesting. It can be done well. You could have one or two characters there, and also would have been kind of a fun, hey, look what computers were like back then, um, type thing. That would have been something you could have also added if you. You didn't want to focus on uh, this story. Just I don't know. Just really interesting. The only female characters are Jean Tatlock, Kitty, and Catherine. Yep. I think it was also, as you said, there were so many opportunities. It didn't have to be a whole other subplot. It could just be a quick yeah. depiction to kind of mention the role mm-hmm. of women. Um, but I was really frustrated by the fact that women were just seen as either being courageous enough to step back or actively undermining the project mm-hmm. because you have to support the men and let the men work right and they're either communists trying to steal secrets from the men or people who were trying to make the men distracted by their uh familiar priorities yeah i think it was interesting though because they allude to how difficult it is to bring people to these sites in the middle of nowhere they were purposefully chosen as sites basically in the middle of nowhere and plenty of people had to uproot their families Mm -hmm. and bring them there and I guarantee you that there were a lot of women who, you know, were also doing their duty to their country to come with their husbands or come themselves to the the projects. I was reading um, an article about how couples with who both had skills were prized at mm-hmm. Manhattan Project sites to have both the man and the woman who could work at the Manhattan Project site. It was it was like a double whammy if you could get them both. And um, like, why wasn't that one part of the conversation? You know, yeah. so. Uh, I think we should just remake it and we should (laughs) add some of those in. So I haven't seen the Manhattan TV series that's on WGN, I think. I know that uh, Lily, I think her name is Lily Bylock, um, who also helped to write a number of big episodes of the Leftovers TV show that has nuke scenes. She was one of the main writers on Manhattan, and she consulted with a bunch of the nuclear people in our community. I've, I've, I want to see Manhattan. I don't have access to the show to be able to get it, but maybe at I've some never point. I have seen it either. But I'm pretty sure there's some top-level um, characters in that show that are also women, and I don't think they're like wives. I think they're involved in the project itself. It's like a semi-biographical story. You know, I think mm-hmm. there's an Oppenheimer, but maybe they don't call him that. 
kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. So I don't yeah. know. I, would, I can't recommend it because I haven't seen it, but... Is it still on? Sorry. No, it's all gone. I think yeah, it only lasted think like they, a, yeah. episode, a season or two. A season or two, yeah. It looked good. Hmm. Would you recommend this movie after we've kind of talked all about it as a teaching tool? Maybe as a at least a movie that's out there? Or would you think it does more harm than good and you'd rather someone watch a documentary instead trying to inspire this generation to get involved i wouldn't say that this is the film that i would pick um because i think as we said the manhattan project is incredibly fascinating and this doesn't necessarily capture that but i think it's in for me it's interesting in the sense of learning more about the relationship between oppenheimer and groves the scientists in general and the tension between facilitating dialogue within scientists to create new ideas Mm -hmm. and trying to manage security and information and scientists versus the military i think it starts to touch on all those points which is really interesting and they're important nuances to understand but i think if you're looking for something to inspire others to get involved especially those who don't have as much of a background this might not be the film yeah Mm -hmm. i totally agree i think i think there are clips from it which would be interesting to show and then to Mm -hmm. spark a dialogue the um tickling the dragon tickling the dragon the the debate between whether or not they should be using it and continue i mean there are certainly little little snippets of it that bring up really interesting conversations that you could have i think if you're teaching the next generation this the things that you need to do are make it interesting, make it relevant, and make it personal. And mm-hmm. this movie does have a lot of those elements. Mm-hmm. It's just I don't walk away being inspired by it. And I I wouldn't necessarily say it's also the best teaching tool in terms of giving you all the information that you might need. So probably wouldn't be my first choice. But I want a five-part Chernobyl-style <laughs> yeah. story. Not a a multiple season show no or even this bbc like 10 part miniseries just make it good five episodes 100 percent. you can cover all this stuff fairly fairly well enough well the part that you were talking when we were going over you know the gun versus the gun barrel versus the implosion the best i mean this is getting back into the chernobyl hbo series but the part the episode at the end of chernobyl where the scientist is walking through what Mm. happened just step by step is the best 10 minutes of television explaining the most complicated thing just in plain terms that is easy to understand. That's what I wanted when they were talking about the gun barrel versus um, implosion. Some I mean, th- that's what you need. I need yeah. I need a diagram, yeah. <laughs> not an orange. The orange was not doing it for me. No, the, the orange did. I mean, also, he, he didn't even show him hold the orange and then pop it. It was done off camera and then he has a squeezed orange in his hand. It was a chaotic it, moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're first wondering, why is your hand leaking? And then you're like, <laughs> oh, okay, here's what the science of it is. Well, before we get into the rating system of, of our movie, do you have favorite nuke movies? If You know, if you want to call them that, things that you, you do actually in, enjoy that have a nuclear uh, plot to them? Gosh, I feel like that is the, uh, so sad because I really don't. I really don't have, like, one thing that is my absolute favorite, but... Uh, so yeah. nu- nuclear pop culture is not part of your, and that's fine. I'm, you no. know, I, f- I find that inter- interesting, but also I completely understand that. Yeah, I think books. I mean, there are certainly books yeah. that I have read that I have done a better job for me of, I don't know, either inspiring me mm-hmm. or having sort of these internal dialogues and conversations. I've I've ex- had that experience more with books than I have had with pop culture, which just makes me 
want more of it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I do want the five-part Chernobyl series that explains the Manhattan Project, and I, I easily think it's a phenomenal story that is interesting and should be told. So I'm still I, waiting for yeah. it. I think you have to seek them out, and I think that yeah. is also difficult when you have to, like, actually search for these nuclear-related pop culture things because... Or, yeah. Or there's like in this niche environment, and even I'm like, oh, where is that? Yeah, shows that sort of tangentially talk about them because I do feel like now that I'm in the field, I do from time to time watch an episode of something where like it'll pop up in the background, mm-hmm. but it won't be the main point of the show, or it won't be a really in depth conversation. It just is there, and so it, it maybe that sparks people's interest enough, but it's not doing a good enough job of focusing on what that thing is and then telling the story wholeheartedly. Well, all you have to do is hear a political speech these days when someone says, we need a Manhattan Project for this. Right. Manhattan Project for education, Manhattan Project for roads. And then if people don't understand what the Manhattan Project is, if they haven't used one of your learning modules and, and figured that out, then um, hopefully that, I mean, people know it's a term that you know, but we don't necessarily know what the context of it is. So let's uh, let's rate the movie. Um, I like to use a consistent one to five scale, so I can be you know consistent across all the content we cover for the podcast. Because I get super critical about the movie, I also like to tailor the rating system scale. So what I've done is I've used my chalkboard, I've I've crunched the math, and I've come up with a scale of one to five sides of a Pentagon cake. If you have just one side and you smash it to the ground in a fit of rage at your new job responsibilities, you don't have any cake left over. If you have a full five-sided Pentagon cake, you can smash one of them and still have eat the other four while watching reruns of your favorite show while lifting your spirits. Real quick here, I, I gave this movie a two. Sorry that I recommended it to you all to watch. Um, I do like Newman's acting, but I feel like both Newman and Schultz are very miscast. Tend to look like the actual characters themselves. Um, Groves is mostly grunting and yelling on the phone. It doesn't really get into things all that much other than kind of an angry military guy. It fails with Kitty and a lot of the other characters. It does a good job with Michael, but man, I just wish, I, 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 we talked about this, I just wish there was a little bit more there. It's, I, I, I agree with you, I'd recommend scenes. Okay, I wouldn't recommend the whole show itself, but what do you... Two is probably where I would come in at. There are certainly things that it does well. It covers some really important parts of the Manhattan Project, and it gets most things right. I'm trying to explain certain things to my family or friends, and we're watching this movie. I wouldn't have to correct a bunch of parts of the movie, which is kind of nice. It it kills me, the fact that they just leave out such critical, important roles of, of women, almost to an extent where they're doing a disservice to include any women at all, to be honest. And I think it it just told too much and not enough. Exactly what Aaron said earlier. It, it missed some things in a movie that easily could have been super fascinating. And for some reason, it just wasn't. Aaron, how do you feel about it? I also am going to go with a two because I would like some cake to comfort me while I watch my <laughs> favorite TV shows. Because um, I really struggled with how women were portrayed in the film. And I know it's from 1989, but still, <laughs> uh, I'm very frustrated with that. And I, I think it did assume a lot of knowledge on the part of the audience. And I think if you're trying to elucidate what the Manhattan Project actually was, it's really important to provide the critical foundational information, including what materials were being used and why, and maybe a diagram of the gun-type device. Uh, and so I think that could have been done. But as Kate said, it's really useful that you don't really have to correct too much, because I think... 
it's better to have done it this way than to have given a false history. Because mm-hmm. um, I think that's also not useful for educational purposes. Well, if someone maybe hear all these twos uh, ratings and go, ah, I don't want to see this movie. I want to see something else. Uh, do you have anything else you want to recommend to the people that, that listening that may want to experience something similar or just want to learn more about either the work that maybe that you do or the work on the Manhattan Project? Uh, I've got three quick things. One is a 1989 TV movie called Day One on CBS. Uh, stars Brian Dennehy and as Leslie Groves. It won an Emmy for Outstanding Drama and Comedy Series. And it also has Tony Shalhoub oh, as uh, Enrico Fermi. <laughs> It's not great, but it's weirdly better, and there are more female characters in the movie. Not a lot, but there are more, yeah. I I recommend as well a book by Robert Server, who is a uh, scientist on the Manhattan Project. He was the guy who, when you showed up as a new scientist at Los Alamos, he would do the Los Alamos primer. He would give a, a, a lecture about everything that they happened to know on how to build an atomic bomb at the beginning. And this book came out uh, in 1992, and you can get it. And it, it's it's just a straight lecture that he gave with a little bit of notes on where they thought the the bomb project was and how to what their the questions were to move forward. I don't understand 70 percent of it, but it's very interesting to see as a historical document. The here you're about to start your job. Here's the things you need to know at least to get on the same page as everybody else. Uh, and finally, I recommend just a great book by Richard Rhodes called The Making of the Atomic Bomb by from 1986. So it came out a few years before this movie. It is one of the, the better books overall on the history of the bomb project. I was also, actually just gifted that book. Oh, it's nice. Enjoy. My, it's on my list. It's a heavy book. It's, a, it's yes, pretty big. It but if you like that one, he did, I think, three more. Dark Sun about the hydrogen bomb and then Arsenal's of Folly and other ones. Yeah. Couple other ones he's done. They get smaller each time. Uh, what about you, Aaron? Do you have anything you want to recommend to people? I would definitely. Minor book related, The Girls of Atomic City, which we've talked about previously. I think that was a really interesting look at the role women played in the Manhattan Project, but also just the role of of everyday civilians who uprooted their lives and moved from all over America to these remote locations that were strategically picked so that Russia or the Soviet Union or other clothes of the state would not be able to find them mm-hmm. and so they were truly in the middle of nowhere and now there's towns that sprouted up around them by the time people really gave up quite a bit and it was interesting to learn more about the everyday life at mm-hmm. a manhattan project site and it's denise also, kiernan yeah yes yes exactly uh and then john hersey's hiroshima was really interesting um and i think very valuable to kind of understand what happened after we dropped the bombs and what the discussion of try whether or not we should and the outcome that we did twice, what that meant for people who were actually living in Japan. I think that's a really important perspective to hold on to. That's great, because the movie does end before really getting into that. So that's a good follow-on. Uh, Kate, got anything for us? Yeah, so day one is also, I mean, that's a good choice. So thanks for mentioning that one. Uh, there's a book called Plutopia by Kate Brown, and I really like that. It's an a, a, accurate historical comparison of um, the pursuit of nuclear weapons both in the U.S. and then in the USSR. Uh, That book is really interesting for me because it also talks about Hanford, which again is where I'm from, and it also talks about a winery, which my family also has. So (laughs) I find it to be pretty interesting, Um, and it's just just very well done and and fascinating all the same. Reminds me of um, Oppenheimer liked to say that he had two favorite loves, physics and the desert. And he was looking for a way to combine those two things. And it happened to be like, oh, yeah, I'll 
Cool. Then go to Los Alamos and build a bomb. That's hilarious. Um, um, and then I, these are just two two quick plugs. You know, if you're looking for educational tools, I think that Girl Security. If you're a little younger and you're listening to us, and you're in middle school or in high school, or even know somebody who's in middle school or high school and is interested, you should definitely reach out to Girl Security. Um, as Aaron mentioned earlier, we're working on a a nuclear module that will be um, available at, at some point if you wanted to. Um, and then I'm working on this other side project. Um, it's a website called highlyenriched.com. Uh, nice. We're still in alpha phase, but it will be um, also sort of crowdsourced um, experiential learning and curricula that you can use um, that's created by other content created by other people as well, but available for sort of all beginner stage levels from high school and college students. So. Great. Well, if you need a list of some good new movies to watch uh, as part of that curriculum, I've got you covered, but that's sounds fascinating. I know uh, another person who's on your uh, girl security board, Jamie, uh, Jamie Withorn. She's come on the podcast before. She's been a guest and Jamie's got this great website. She's been building learnwmd.com, which provides a lot of great resources as well. So I think between all of this, uh, if you've made it this far in the episode, you want to learn more, those are some great things to check out. So Kate, Aaron, thanks very much again. Um, where can people find some more other than Girl Security? Where can people find uh, more of your work? Maybe your Twitter handles if you want to share those or anything you got in terms of how people to follow your, your work. You can find me at Blonde Nuke Girl on Twitter. And you can find me at Aaron underscore Con 17. C-O-N-N 17. Yes. Great. Well, thanks very much again. Really appreciate it. Thanks uh, so much. It's been Happy awesome. New Happy New Year 2020. Thanks for checking off the first thing on my goals for 2020. <laughs> Resolution's done. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or you want to tell us what we got wrong, uh, either about the movie or about maybe you live next to Los Alamos and we got this entire thing wrong, please let us know. A couple ways you can do that. Twitter at Nuclear Podcast. We're also on Facebook. We have an email account, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. Our website, supercriticalpodcast.com, has got a good number of resources on each how, each episode, the things that we do to build this particular episode you just heard, as well as other contacts and things like that. Um, and also I have a list of, I finally put up my list of 300 plus nuke movies and TVs that I've been building. So if you just want to see how much stuff's out there, you can see that list as well. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Aaron. Kate. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. I love it.